like us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3. I am uh, supposed to be doing a series on stewardship. That's what I think I'm supposed to be preaching on. Um, but I keep getting captured by some other passages of Scripture, and particularly uh, this theme of God's grace and the gospel uh, the crosswalk of Christ. And then I think to myself, would it be uh, inappropriate to tie generosity to the gospel? Would it be an odd thing? <laughs> so there's part of me that thinks, maybe I don't need to preach on stewardship and giving because I don't like to preach about that because... Honest truth is, I get my paycheck from the church and it can look self-serving. That's what runs through my mind. And at the same time, I realize that God's Word teaches us a lot about how to handle our resources to advance the work of the kingdom of God and to spread the good news of Christ. So we have every reason to talk about giving. And I'm going to come to that in a few weeks. So if you don't want to be here for those sermons, you're warned ahead of time. You can skip. But I believe if you do, you will miss a great message from God. That in generosity is one of the greatest joys of life. And in stinginess is sadness. Because in stinginess, what I'm saying is, if I'm not going to be generous, life is about me. And the more I have, the more happy I will be. You will be severely disappointed in your life. And so this morning, I want to return to this passage about the gospel with a confidence that it is completely appropriate to teach the good news of Christ as a motivation to self-sacrifice. Because self-sacrifice is typically born out of deep and profound gratitude and amazement. And I believe that as we look through this passage, you will find reasons to be amazed by the grace of God. And to be encouraged to serve him more faithfully. Last Sunday morning we looked at verses 1 through 9 of Philippians chapter 3. And we identified the fact that Paul was a man who was deeply passionate about Christ. Because in Christ he found solid righteous ground upon which he could one day stand. And give an account to God in the covering that Christ provides. And be found a man who is imperfect and not innocent, yet declared righteous. He had a standing in Christ apart from his performance. And that in verse 7, 8 through 9 are what kind of fire Paul up and encourage his heart and cause him to write this portion of this letter. He had found a status in Christ that was, that, that was owing in no way to his past performance, which in his setting was stellar and amazing. But he came to a place in his life where he could say, I count all of that performance that the world so honors and admires, I count it as scuba, as the Greek word, as rubbish, as a carcass laying beside the road, disgusting and something that I want to avoid. And he did that because in Christ, he found a righteousness that was superior to his inferior righteousness. And that discovery on the road to Damascus led to a dramatic transformation and change in the life of one who was known as Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as the writer of many New Testament letters, the Apostle Paul. The end result of finding Christ as his own righteousness was that Paul began to treasure Christ. 
He became his greatest passion. His greatest desire was to know Christ personally. The question I want to ask us this morning is this. What would the effects on my life be if I choose and begin today to treasure Christ and the gospel of Christ like Paul did? How will my life change if I become a man who embraces and begins to treasure more deeply and more fully the work of God in his son Jesus Christ? And I think verse 10 and following tell us how it will affect us. Verse 10 of Philippians 3, Paul says, and this is as a result of finding the righteousness of God that comes by grace through faith, verse 9. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. His amazed hope, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this, Or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself as yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind. And straining forward to what is ahead. I press on toward the goal. To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take the same view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you with grace. Only let us live up to what we have already attained, achieved, or grasped. As we begin discussion discussion this morning, I want to identify Paul's joy and Paul's goal. Okay, Paul's joy in the gospel and Paul's goal in life as a result of the gospel. And then I'm going to launch into four uh, observations that I want to make about this pursuit of Paul's goal. Paul's joy was this. It was that his standing of righteousness with God was based upon the completed work of God in Christ in Paul's life. His position before God is what is the source of Paul's Joy And his joy is found in the fact that by the grace of God and by the blood of Christ, he stands before God just as if he had never sinned. Okay, that is the the joy for Paul was to find that he, a rebellious sinner, had been justified by the grace of God and given a status that was in no way owing to his past. So this gratitude then is a humble, destitute, Poverty-stricken gratitude. Because what he had to realize is, all that I had accomplished is rubbish. But now I have Christ. And I have everything I need. And he expresses that in, I want to know him. Who? The one who has brought me into a right place before God and changed my eternal destiny. Now, the doctrine of justification means this. It, It means that when I stand before God, I will be treated as if I had never sinned as an innocent man while I am a guilty man I'm going to give you an illustration and see if this helps to clear up how the gospel works in terms of what does justification mean how many of you ever been pulled over by a police officer for uh, speeding okay some people are willing to admit it and some not okay uh 
when you're pulled over by a police officer for speeding, let's say you're going 50 in a 30, okay? Let's say the police officer's having a good day because he just came from Dunkin' Donuts and he's in a good mood, okay? He lets you off. He gives you a break. He doesn't write you a ticket. In fact, he even asks you that question, well, when's the last time you've had a ticket? Sometimes you say, well, I plead the fifth on that. As one of my friend's sons had to do recently because he had two speeding tickets in one day. That wouldn't bring grace from me. <laughs> this police officer says, well, how's your record? Well, not as bad as a lot of people's. And so he says, okay, I'm going to let you go. Here's the question I have for you. Is that justice? Is that justice? Did he do what is right? No. Is it mercy? At one level it is, but did it cost him anything to let you go? No. It's not justice. Okay? It's nice. You're grateful, but it's not justice. <clears throat> and it is not what God does for you. If I, if I take the analogy further, here, here's the proper way to look at it. The policeman pulls you over in a 50 or in a 30 mile an hour zone for going 50 miles an hour. He writes you a summons and you have to go to court because your speed exceeded uh, a certain boundary and it meant that you had to show up in court and take courses, etc., etc., etc. This police officer who wrote you the summons comes to court on the day that you show up. The judge hands down a verdict. $150 fine and uh, surcharges for the next three years for $300, whatever it may be. <clears throat> the police officer comes to the judge, cuts a check out of his checkbook, and gives it to the judge, and eliminates the consequence of your violation. Okay? That is grace. You walk out of that courtroom a, an accused, guilty speeder. I don't know if speeder's a word or not, but that's... that's <laughs> I thought of this this morning. I'm like, is that a word? I don't know. It is now. Okay. You walk out guilty. You are a violator of the law, but you are not being treated as if you were. Why? Because somebody else bore the consequence of your violation. Folks, that's what Christ did for you. What you deserved is eternal punishment and separation from God. And that is what Jesus Christ endured on the cross. And that is why the Apostle Paul says, I want to be found in him. Not having this righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes by faith and is through grace in Christ. And that's what amazed him and stunned him. He knew at the end of his life, 1 Timothy 1, 15, what does he say? I am the chiefest of sinners, but I have the hope of heaven. Any religious person is offended by that statement. Paul, if you're the chiefest of sinners, you don't deserve heaven. That's exactly what he's saying. I deserve God's judgment and condemnation, but that judgment fell on the shoulders of his son who took the wrath of my sin. And I have a position. I am declared righteous. I'm not innocent, but I am treated as if I am because Christ paid the price for my sin. Folks, that is what for Paul is his joy, that he stands on holy ground, that he has in regards to this been willing to lose everything so that he might have Christ and be acquitted by his grace. One writer, one commentator named Thielsen said it this way. He said, at conversion, 
you must drop the notion that you and God are partners in the project of justification. Paul, on the road to Damascus, unplugged the religious treadmill of his life. And he left it sitting on the road and never would return to it. Why? He had found a superior righteousness. And that superior righteousness produced in him a joy that caused him to, know the, to want to know the one who had provided such a gift. Who had so freely forgiven and transformed his life and heart. He left all of his effort on that road and became a man who treasured Christ above everything else in his life. Why? Because Christ had changed his eternal destiny. His debt was paid in full. What a glorious, glorious truth. And for Paul, this joy in justification becomes the the ground of worship. And that's why this worship experience in Paul's life now, this full giving of himself to the pursuit of knowing Christ and becoming like him, even if it requires his death, becomes Paul's intended choice in life. He wants to and is in pursuit of knowing Christ above all things. It is the ground of his worship. Paul's goal as a result then is this, and it's the second aspect of Christian living. Justification is the beginning of your Christian experience. It is the completed work of Christ that is applied to your life, owing nothing to what you have done. Sanctification is the progress that you begin to experience and know in your life as a Christ follower. And it is not completely owing to your effort, though it requires your effort. So you were saved and given a status. And what, what Paul is saying is, I want to be conformed to that status. I want to pursue that status that is mine. That righteousness that I will have in heaven, I want to go after that now. As the means by which I honor and glorify the Savior. And so Paul in verse 10 will cry out passionately, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, sharing in it. I, I want to become like Him in His death and so somehow to attain of the resurrection from the dead what he's saying is this i want to be so united with the work of christ that one day when my resurrection day comes i will be like him and with him forever and it is for that reason that paul then sets out on this passionate pursuit to know christ and ultimately to become like him in his death he is that willing to give himself fully to the cause of christ now If someone makes that strong of a claim, if they say that their desire for Christ is that strong, that just pervasive in his life, you may read that and think, is Paul not here a little bit arrogant or proud? Isn't he not overstating things when he says that this is his committed goal and passion? Is he saying or indicating in any way that he has somehow achieved the goal that he's been pursuing? And verses 12 and following help us to understand how Paul is pursuing this goal of sanctification, which is an ongoing, lifelong pursuit of becoming like Jesus. Is he in any way arrogant in making such claims, in expressing such profound, life-altering desires? Paul clarifies in verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained this. Verse 13, brothers... I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, in this work of sanctification, I identify with you. We are in this work pursuing together. I'm not there yet. Join me in this pursuit of becoming like 
Jesus Christ. And so it's fascinating to me that two times he makes the statement. I have not already attained it. I have not yet taken hold of it. But that is the persistent goal of my life. Now, the first principle then is this. Remember in your Christian experience, as you respond to the gospel of grace by pursuing Christ-likeness, remember that the goal is progress, not perfection. The first question that comes to my mind is, why is the goal progress and not perfection? Because my perfection is already done. My perfection, my righteousness is in Jesus Christ. So the goal is not perfection. That's already been achieved and lived and applied by grace through faith. And Paul says, so I stand on superior ground in a right relationship with God in Christ. But, Paul is saying, I still have room for improvement in my life. Paul was humble enough to recognize before his brothers and sisters in Christ that they may misunderstand as he talks so passionately about Christ that he doesn't want them to go away saying, well, Paul's got it together, but I don't, okay? Paul's there. He's he's right on track all the time. Paul said, no, 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 I don't. I have room for growth and progress in my passionate pursuit of Christ, Here's the way I responded to this text. I thought, what a relief. If the Apostle Paul could admit, in spite of amazing suffering and sacrifice and passion and faithfulness to Christ, if he could say, hey, I'm not there yet, then can't we say that to each other? Can't we be honest with each other and confess our faults to each other so that we don't give the impression that we have arrived and those around us think that their life is somehow less effective and less important to the cause of God? I'm encouraged by Paul's transparency. On Tuesday, I met with a man in our church who was a new believer. And I've been meeting with him on Tuesday mornings at 9 o'clock in a process of discipleship. Had an interesting conversation with him in light of this truth that the, the goal is progress, not perfection. He said to me, he said, Tim, he said, I, I am really trying to be the man that God wants me to be. And he, he, this man is so evidently changed by the gospel of grace that after I, I called him the other day and I said, I just want you to know that since Tuesday morning, this is Thursday, my heart has been so deeply encouraged by our discussion about your love for Christ as your pastor. I said, my, my, I have just, I've thought over and over and over about what he said to me. Here's what he said. He said, Tim, I'm, I'm striving, trying to put into practice what I have found in Christ and what I love in Christ. He's got tears running down his face. He said, he said last Sunday, he said, I got it. He didn't mean he had, first, he had come to Christ a few months before, but he's saying, I got it. He was raised in a Catholic setting, and he finally understood with deep clarity that what Christ had done for him is a complete work. It is completely finished. He can and need not add anything to what Christ has accomplished. But here's his concern. He said, my problem is I get to the end of the day having tried to live for Christ and I find sin in my heart. He said, I strive, I try. But I find that I come up a little bit short of my expectation for what I should be. I said to him, I said, well, that." To be truthful, it's very encouraging, okay? I said, I'm glad to hear that personally. Because I said, that's my experience. And I said, do you know that God has made provision for that? First John 1, 8 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is to say what? In the word, God has anticipated that Tim Hoff and my new friend in Christ will not measure up every day. We strive to, we know we will fail, but that's okay because Christ's righteousness is the ground we stand on, not our performance. And it's very important that you understand that. And it's why the Apostle Paul, as he writes, excuse me, as he writes, he's saying that the goal of the Christian life is progress, not perfection. God has made provision for our failures, for our shortcomings. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Tim, I think I've arrived. Here's what you need to do. You need to have an honest conversation with your mate or your kids. And let them disamuse you of what you think you have accomplished. All right, you need, if you think you don't need the covering of God's righteousness again and again and again. If you don't need the blood of Christ to cleanse you from daily sin. You're probably living blindly. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What you need to do is draw near to the standard of righteousness so that you can see that you have not attained perfection and need progress. And what that will do is it will make it possible for us to live with you. Okay? And Paul's just checking in with the church. He's saying, you know what? I'm just like you. The goal is progress, not perfection. God has already given us perfection, so we need not achieve it. It has been given to us. We are recipients of it as a gift of God's grace. Don't be shocked brothers and sisters, by the need for improvement in yourself and in those around you. Okay, don't be blown away that people struggle with sin. They do. They need your help. They need God's help. Particularly in the realm of our relationships in the body of Christ. An attitude that is shocked by sin and doesn't seek to help, but rather pulls away, and I believe just dishonors the gospel of grace. Don't expect perfection from yourself and others. Because if you do, you will lack joy and you will be a joy killer in your relationships. You'll never find that a discussion about the imperfections of others, gossip, leads to an encouraged and joyful heart. It never does. Because it denies fundamentally the nature of the gospel of grace to which Paul clings, saying the goal is progress and not perfection. Second thought that emerges is in verse 13. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. That is the prize of knowing Christ. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press toward the mark, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. Now, I want you to focus on the phrase, one thing I do. And Paul defines the one thing negatively and positively. Okay, negatively, he says, forgetting what is behind. So if the first thought is, remember that the goal is progress, not perfection, then the second flows out of it. To experience progress in my Christian experience, I must forget the past. I must forget the past. That negative kind of memory is what Paul here is ruthlessly opposing. Okay, people that are in bondage to bad experiences in their past for which they are responsible. They're hanging on to it in a way that is detrimental to their work and walk in Christ. Paul's saying this, I am off and running and I will not turn back. That's the way the message 
translates this statement. Forgetting what is behind, I press towards the mark. Okay, takes the sports analogy. He says, I am persistently putting behind me two things. And this is, I think, so important for us. He is putting behind himself memories of past successes. Why? Because memories of past success can make me smug, self-satisfied, and lazy. How did Paul look at his past performance? He said, I count it as rubbish. Why? It would hold me down. It would keep me from the cross, first of all. It would keep me from pursuing righteousness. Because if his personal achievements were better than those around him, he would have no reason to pursue if it were not for the love and passion of Christ in his life. So he says, never look back in a way that will hinder your pursuit of Christ in regards to successes, but also on the positive side, or he says, uh, memories of past sins, failures, and or disappointments. Okay, Paul's saying, forget that stuff. Put that behind you. Why? Because those types of thoughts will make you depressed. They will make you burdened. They will fill you with guilt. And they will paralyze you spiritually. We need to come to a place in our lives where we realize that the blood of Christ actually takes away our sin. And that beating ourselves up over past failures or clinging to past successes destroys spiritual joy. And folks, look. If you want to know who it is that wants you to live remembering past failures, it is very easy to find out who that is. He is in the Bible called the accuser of the brothers. He's the one who wants to shout into your ear on a regular and habitual basis all of your past failures. You need to speak back to that voice. You need to proclaim the blood of Christ as the standing, as, as the righteousness upon which you stand. You need to claim its cleansing as your only hope. You need to admit that I am like the man in the courtroom who is a guilty speeder, who has been absolved of the consequence of his sin. Because what Satan's going to say is, well, yeah, you're forgiven, but you still are. Oh, yes, I am. But the consequence of my sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. Folks, you don't need to live with the baggage of past guilt. Paul, if anyone could feel guilty, Paul said, I could feel guilty. I'll give you this challenge. Go read Acts 23 and Acts 26, where Paul recalls his testimony. Because in the midst of his testimony, he talks about standing by garments as he authorizes and instructs the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Paul says, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. I didn't just beat people, I killed them. Now, if you want to have a regret that would hold you down, that certainly would be one. But Paul says, I will have nothing to do with it. I have been forgiven by the grace of God, which to the religious person is profoundly irritable because they're saying, wait, you mean someone that actually killed someone could be forgiven by God and have the hope of heaven? The answer is yes. If they trust in the shed blood of Christ as the means of their forgiveness, they certainly can. Paul is saying, I refuse to ever look back. And Paul realizes this also. And I think Rick Warren puts this so well. He says, God never wastes a hurt. All of your past failures, God is able to overcome them and work them together for good. He is that big of a God. And we sang that song this morning. He tells every lightning bolt where it should go. In my mind here, I have to be honest with you, I sang that. I thought, I wonder how many of us really believe that. 
I wonder how many of us really believe that. That God is so sovereign, so exhaustively in control of the world that we live in, that He can take the worst experience in your past, your worst failure, and you just use it as a means to magnify the cross of Christ. And when that is magnified, our joy increases. That's how Paul saw his life. Oh, yes, I was the chiefest of sinners, and God chose me. And what is Paul saying? If he used me, he can use you. Forget about past because it will only produce a burden, regret, and frustration in your life. I wonder this morning, what burden, what regret, what past decision or accomplishment is hindering you in your pursuit of treasuring and valuing Jesus above all things? I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Paul was passionately in pursuit of Christ. He realized that to pursue him, he must forget the past and go for Christ with all his heart. The next thought I would like us to look at is found in verse 12. Notice how Paul says this, second half of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I <clears throat> press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Then go to verse 13, second half of the verse. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Okay, those are two analogies that the Apostle Paul uses to discuss the nature of sanctification, this issue of experiencing progress in our Christian experience. Two pictures. One is the picture of a runner. One is the picture of an archer. Okay, in the picture of a runner, the idea is <clears throat> this picture of an athlete moving towards the finish line, straining, arms stretched back so that their head crosses the line first. A <clears throat> fixed and certain focus and the giving of strenuous effort to achieve the goal. The second analogy is the analogy of an archer in verse 14. <clears throat> I press toward the goal. That word goal is the idea of the mark. Okay, the target that an archer pulls back and shoots for. If you've ever shot any uh, guns or shot bow and arrow, you know that it requires complete focus and steadiness and concentration. A full exertion of all of your attention on that one goal in order to hit the target dead center. Take your eye off the goal, you fail. Okay, for runners, this is so critical. The idea in the text is this. When you pass someone, don't look back. Don't look back. I have a, a daughter that runs cross country, and we have a standing joke about her because Erica is, just tends to be like the most polite person on the planet. She just exudes love, and yet she's in this competitive environment and is, is decent at it. And we always joke about it at home saying, we, we can imagine Erica running in a race, passing someone and apologizing on the way by. Okay? Two weeks ago, she was running her first track meet with uh, the cleats on, a cross-country meet. And she ended up in a pile of seven people. Okay, just, everybody just piled up. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you what went through my mind at that moment. I'm like, Erica, you have to stab them to get them off you. Do anything you can to get, get them off you and get going, right? Because they're going to hinder you. All right, get your eye on the goal and go. I, I said, what happened? She said, I was last out of the pack of 280 runners <laughs> as a result of this fall. Ended up, you know, making up for a lot of it. But I said, why? Well, Make sure everybody was okay. I said, I'm not surprised. <laughs> not surprised. Now, what is Paul saying? He's saying when you're in a race, you can't, you can't, and this sounds so unchristian to say this, okay? You can't worry about offending people that you pass. 
All right, when you're in a race, you get your eye on the goal and you go for that goal with all of your effort. And it, he's just saying, he said, when a runner runs in a race, nothing will distract him. He puts everything aside. Okay, now, if you ever want to impress me, okay, invite me over to your house after you've mowed your grass. Okay? Because I have something I love when, when I mow my grass. Okay? I love straight lines. Okay? I know it sounds foolish, but many men, I'm sure, in our church, Brent, I know Brent can appreciate this. Uh, straight lines are awesome in grass, okay? It's not a materialistic thing, okay? It's just an artistic accomplishment, okay? The way you get straight lines in your grass is you can't worry about what your neighbor is doing, okay? You won't get straight lines in your grass. You want straight lines in your grass? You fix your eye on the thing that's farthest away, and you drive straight at it. And you know what you end up with? You end up with what you were going after. You know what Paul's saying? If you want to become like Christ, Set your eye on the mark and don't deviate. Don't let anything distract you. Don't worry about all the concerns of others. Go for that goal for the glory of God. Okay, what does it require? It requires focus and persistent effort. Think, I was going to try to get a picture of a racer at the end of a race of of a 100-meter run, stretching for the line, all the veins popping out. What is it saying? He is not thinking about what he's having for dinner. He is not. Right after he's done, he might. But he is not thinking about that. He is focused on one goal, and that is, I'm going to get from here to there faster than anybody around me. And nothing will deter from that. And he will put all of his energy into that moment. That's how the Apostle Paul lived his life. The principle is this. Remember that progress requires a daily choice to have a singular and consuming desire in your life. For the Apostle Paul, that's what his life was all about. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, he says this. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. That's Paul's heart. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. If you want to know Christ, it is going to require persistent, daily, strenuous effort to know him. That's why Paul said to Timothy, a young pastor, he said, Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27, Paul talks about his own self-discipline. He says, I beat my body, I make it my slave, so that at the end of the race, I will not be a castaway. He says, I do damage to my fleshly desires that steal from my heart treasuring Christ. Paul was afraid of things in his life that could distract him from the enormous benefit and blessing of knowing and pursuing Jesus more than anything else. The Bible pictures life as a race that ends in death. The question I ask you this morning is this. Are you pressing on? Are you consumed with pleasing Christ? Do your daily life and routines, habits, disciplines, do, do you maintain them? Do you maintain a heart that wants to seek after God and His Word? Spend time in prayer. Go hard after God. And folks, I, I know the struggle with this, okay? I, I'm the distracted type. I am the naturally distracted type. If I go to my office in the morning first thing, my spiritual walk is dead. I, 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 distractions pull me off base so fast. If I'm going to maintain my walk with God, I have to carve out times when I get alone with God. I, for me, it has to be a discipline that requires effort and persistent choice or it's not going to happen. Because the concerns of life, the tyranny of the urgent will control your life. 
And what you will find is that your spiritual life begins to wane and become anemic and weak, and you're wondering why. This morning, I want to suggest to you that you take Paul's wisdom from this text and many others. Verse 14, he says, I press persistently towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. Remember that progress requires a daily choice. And I think it's 1 Corinthians 15. You know what Paul says? He says, I die daily. <laughs> Jesus says, take up your cross daily. Are we doing that? Can you look at your life and say, you know what? Every day I am reckoning with what it means to be a persistent, focused follower of Christ. Because if you're not, I can guarantee you're wandering off the track. You're laying in a pile of people, not experiencing progress for the glory of God. And you can. You can. And the last thought, I think, is going to help you to understand why I believe that is so profoundly true. Look at the end of verse 12. Once again, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has. And you've got to love this statement. Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So what is Paul saying? I'm in this race. I'm in this pursuit. I'm in this process called sanctification, becoming more like Christ, because he got a hold of me. Paul looks back to Acts 9, and you know what he realizes? On the road to Damascus, he was a hard-hearted rebel seeking to destroy the church of Christ. He wasn't a guy wondering about how deep his commitment should be, whether what he was doing is right or wrong. He was committed. And when Christ confronted him, he understood God just grabbed my heart and changed me. Paul's heart is this. I am committed to pursuing what Christ laid hold of me for. And if you want to know what he laid hold of Paul for, you have to go back to Acts chapter 9, when a man named Ananias is called by God to go and to help Saul, who was a raving murderer who had been converted on the road to Damascus. And when he gets to Damascus, God says, Oh, Ananias, I want you to go and talk to a man named Saul of Tarsus. Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, now listen to this. This man is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. When Ananias came to the Apostle Paul as a changed man, he found a man who God told him was chosen to be an instrument for God's purposes. Folks, I believe that is true for every Christian. I believe that God has purposes for your life that he chose you to accomplish for his glory. But the accomplishing of those purposes will not be accomplished in apathy and passivity. It will only be accomplished when we passionately and persistently pursue and cooperate with God in the pursuit of his purposes for our life. The encouragement to you this morning is if you experience frustration in your walk with Christ, <clears throat> these verses, and verse 14 I think particularly in, in Philippians 3, he says, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. So God is at work in Paul's life, right? He grabs him on the road and he sets him on a path and he says, Paul, I am with you. I'm going to enable you. And Paul's saying, and God, I'm going to do everything I possibly can 
to honor you and to treasure your Savior more and more. It is a beautiful picture. The fourth thought is this. Be optimistic about progress because you are not alone. Be optimistic about progress because you in your walk with Christ and desire to be like Christ and pursuit of being like Christ, you are not alone. And I want you to look at, at two verses right in Philippians. Just turn back one page, Philippians 1.6. Say, Tim, why should I be optimistic about a life in which I have been struggling so much? And I believe this text will answer your question. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on. He will see it through to completion until the day of Christ. Here's what Jesus said, or I think it's in the Old Testament. The mother and father forsake me, the Lord will pick me up. Paul's saying if your closest acquaintance fails you, God will and can not fail you. He has committed the full display of his power in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. He has committed all of those resources to your success. The question I think that we have to ask is this, will I join him? And if you join him, do it with full-blown optimism. Because as you work, God is working in you. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, this treasuring of Christ and becoming like Christ, with fear and trembling. For God is working in you to act according to his goodwill and pleasure. Well, that's a promise that should light your day up. As you say yes to God about pursuing Christ-likeness, God comes alongside and makes possible the impossible. How great is his power? That's the question that I want to end with this morning. How great is his ability to see you through the end? Is there reason for optimism? I think Philippians 3 and verse 10 answers the question. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. When he says no, he doesn't mean I just want to know intellectually that Christ died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. He wants to know intimately, not at a rational level, but at a personal level. He wants to know the resurrection power of Christ in his life. Because he knows that if it could raise Christ from the dead, it could change everything that is wrong in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul, I believe, was converted because he was confronted and convicted by the resurrected Christ. What is it that makes resurrection power unique? And why should I be optimistic in my Christian experience? One writer puts it this way. He says, you should be optimistic about your Christian life because resurrection power is the kind that works when all other hope is gone. Resurrection power is the kind of power that works when all other hope is gone. When you reach the end of your resources, God is about to work in your life. When you come to God and say, God, I understand the call. I know what you want. I can't, but I want to. And I am willing to commit myself to that task. God's promise is, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there and I will change your life and give you a hope that will never die. Folks, listen, understand that your Christian experience began with an awakening. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 says, When we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together. You know what Paul's saying? I don't want to know the resurrection power only at the end in the eschaton. He says, I want to know the resurrection power now. 
And it's exactly what he's beginning to experience based on Ephesians 2.4. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I am alive. I have sensitivity to the things of God, to the voice of the Spirit. And therefore, Paul's saying, I have hope because that resurrection power can do things that other people can't do. Think about John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. Four days later, Jesus comes to town. Martha runs out to Christ, and here's what she says. She says, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. Well, that, that's amazing faith. Lord, if you had been here, that terminal illness would not have been terminal. That's what she's saying. And then Jesus moves towards the tomb, and it's this protracted story. That statement is made, and then in the midst of this picture of despair, the paid whalers are there. Those that are paid professional mourners, they're all around because he is, in fact, dead. Here's what Jesus says. He says, uh, Martha, tell them to remove the stone. What's Martha's response to that? Oh, yes, sir, right away. You know, what does she say? It's going kind of, to sound funny when I say it, but she said, he stinketh. King James, what did she mean? It's beyond hope. It's what she meant. Can't happen. You know the rest of the story. The impossible becomes possible. And a picture of the life-changing power of Christ is given to the early church. Folks, you should be optimistic about your ability to pursue growth in Christ because God is for you. And Paul later says, the power that raised Jesus from the dead will quicken your mortal bodies. It will not only bring you to spiritual life, it will also give you the hope of eternity with him. What a deal. What a reason to pursue and know Christ intimately and passionately in our lives. Every Christian, in verse 15, Paul says, should take this view of things. That the goal is progress and not perfection. To experience progress, I need to forget all of the struggles from the past. And I know there are many here this morning who have them. We need to remember that progress requires a daily choice. So I, have to, I need to maintain my daily disciplines with God in order to experience progress in Christ. And as I maintain the daily disciplines, he comes alongside and produces in us an optimism about progress because we are not operating in our flesh alone. The Spirit of God has come alongside. He has come within and is enabling us to be the man, to be the young person, to be the woman that God wants us to be. Do you have a purpose and goal for your life this morning? Do you have a growing appreciation for the cross of Christ that so transformed Paul's life that he went on a totally different trajectory? This morning, if you've never met Christ personally, I want to encourage you to come to know him as your Lord and Savior, as we sung so beautifully a few minutes ago. He died for you. He loves you. He wants a personal relationship with you. Father, would you bless your word to our hearts this morning?